We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everyone. This is the only podcast hosted by two brothers talking about the thing they love, in this case, comic books. And I'm one of your hosts, Kevin Hines. I'm the other host, Will Hines. Uh, we are comedians and brothers and friends, and we're talking about comic books. And uh, we're starting a season of guests. Yeah, we're, we're at the beginning or, or the very beginning of uh, a season of guests. We're going to have friends. We're going to have comic book creators. Uh, funny people, smart people, p- better people than us. Yeah, to talk about comic books. And today our first guest is Tom Brevoort, who's an executive editor at Marvel Comics, or as he describes it, the master of Marvel arts. This We couldn't have gotten a better guest. Well, this feels like perfectly in line with what we want. Because of doing this podcast, Kevin pointed me to Tom's blog in which he will sometimes like do deep dives on 60s Marvel comics, like analyzing the original art, trying to figure out whether Stan Lee or Jack Kirby did that or this. There's really interesting stuff. So we've been fans of him just as a comics analyzer for a while. Yeah, he works in the industry, but even better, it's like he is a super fan of comic books. Yeah, um, he's and he's got an insane memory for stuff that he's read. Like on his blog, he'll talk about issues he read as a kid, and he he seems to remember every issue that he's ever read and in what order he read them. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating and exciting. Uh, before we get into that, uh, we're not going to mention it again, but uh, if you want to email us, email us at screwitspidey at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And visit our Twitter and Instagram at ScrewItComics. So ScrewItSpidey at Gmail is our email. ScrewItComics is our social media handles. Yeah, maybe we'll start doing reading emails after we do the guest interviews too. We have, we're still figuring all this out. Yeah, and, uh, this, other is gonna be a lo- this is going to be a long one, so no emails today. Yeah, uh, and Tom is an executive editor of Marvel. He edits um, the Avengers comics and Fantastic Four, and he's been there – he started as an intern in 1989 and basically never left Marvel. So he's been part of tons of titles of things uh, pursuant to Kevin and our, my particular niche interest. He was an editor of untold tales of Spider-Man. Uh, and I think he was an editor on Thunderbolts uh, in the late nineties, mm-hmm. which are stories yep. that Kevin is a fan of and turned me on to. He was um, an editor during the hero's return era of all the like Avengers, Iron Man, uh, I think maybe FF as well, all those sort of like the heroes coming back. He also worked on the original Winter Soldier comics with yeah, uh, we Ed Brubaker. We talked about a lot of that stuff. We, t- we covered a lot of that stuff. So we're just saying this is a this is a big name that we got both because of his particular uh, uh, analyzing of comics that, that dovetails well with our podcast, but also this guy just has crazy comic book credits. Right? And we're going to For- talk briefly about uh, the comics he chose, which are Fantastic Four, 177, 178, 179 by like Roy Thomas, George Perez, Joe Sinnott, uh, a couple other creators that artist changes a little bit every issue. They're really yeah. weird, crazy, fun issues that are probably on Comixology, definitely on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, so we'll talk about that too. So um, I guess without further ado, let's get into the uh, get into the episode. Here's Tom Brevoort. Come on, uh, come on, on Tom. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah. Nice thanks. To see you both. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We're so thrilled. Yeah, we're very excited. We uh, referenced your your blog a, a lot throughout the, the history of our <laughs> com- comic book, especially when we were dealing with the old uh, original Spider-Man, FF, and Hulk comics that we covered. Yeah, uh, I'm 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 glad uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and hopefully I won't change your opinion by the time we're done here. 
Uh, I talk, we talked a lot about the Hulk flying posts, uh, yep. which I thought were fascinating. Um, uh, the, the deep dives into the, the first two or three issues of FF, I think, came out after we had covered those issues. But we, Will and I talked about them together for sure. We found them fascinating. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm obviously I like hearing that. And, uh, you know, hopefully you got something out of them. And, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the patronage. Yeah, and we'll just say it again. We've said it to our listeners before. If you're a true deep dive comic book nerd, uh, Tom's blog is extraordinary. And uh, although it covers lots and lots of topics, uh, all with a lot of passion of a knowledgeable fan, the ones I love are when you dig into 60s Marvel like original <laughs> artwork and try to make assumptions <laughs> over how they were created and how the collaboration between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby happened. I mean, there's such an insanely deep dive. I worry for your mental health, but I'm also <laughs> glad that you did it because it's, uh, I think, you know, any fan of Marvel comics would really dig it. So well, as I say, I am, I am, uh, I am well and specially trained to, 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 to handle such things. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like it's a perspective that I can, I can bring to this stuff. Like everybody pretty much since the sixties, everybody has been talking about those comics uh, and the underlying question of who did what and how did yeah. these things happen and yeah. what is the apportioning of credit that is is proper is always a question. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like having edited comics for so long and uh, you know having started in the business back in the days when you know comics were still done physically on on boards rather yeah. than uh, you know all digitally as as they're mostly dealt with today. Um, I feel like I have a good eye for when uh, things were adjusted, things were tweaked and so forth in the printed books even that maybe a layman won't have. And yeah. so I can bring some sort of specialized uh, knowledge to the table uh, as we try to, you know, uh, uh, retrofit and reverse engineer how some of these stories came together. Yeah, you're um, in a position to make a pretty educated guess. So I'm I'm glad that you're making those educated guesses. You know that that said, we're we're never going to know really for real right. every single aspect of of all of these things. Yeah. Um. So a lot of it is yeah. is also you know educated guesswork, um. And it even changes you know month in and month out as either new things come to light or different people make different observations that that strike me as being accurate. Or, or when I invent my one-use time machine and waste it just to solve this mystery, because that's the first thing I'll check out. People are going to be mad at you when you do that. Oh, they'll be really mad, except for a handful of people will be like, this is interesting. Yeah, a very now small group of our friends will be glad. <laughs> um, we're we're, we're going to be talking a little bit later in this episode about the issues Fantastic Four 177, 178, 179 that came out in, I think, 1976, which is what Tom has chosen that we will talk about, and I'm excited to do that. Um, they're, uh, I think outrageous and fun and silly issues, not silly, but like they're, they're of a different tone than I think current fantastic four stories would have. And I'm excited to get into it. I think silly is the right tone. They felt silly. I mean, they were good. Um, they're funny. They were, uh, yeah. They felt like the sillier side of FF, which is definitely a side that FF has always had, but oh man. Uh, what, uh, what what order do you want to go in? Well, do you want to talk about those first or? No, I want to, I just, okay. I want to let people know that we will get to that, but I first want to assault Tom with a couple of real nerdy comic book questions. Great. All right. So Tom, um, let's get into this, the, what we just talked about, the collaboration. How would you say, what's the proper way to describe how the credit should be given between Lee and Kirby on FF? Like if you were like, how, right, it's wrong to say that Lee is the writer 100%. 
it's it's it's, I, it's certainly wrong to say that Lee is the writer 100%, especially when you come down to what writing actually involves. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's also the difference between like how we would credit something today and how they did it back in the 60s. In the 60s, right. when the early Marvel books were, were first starting up, credits were really not a thing in the field. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. most comics had no credit, or if they had a credit, it was a, a byline like on a newspaper strip. It didn't necessarily tell you who had done that particular story. It mm -hmm. was just sort of a Batman by Bob Kane. Every Batman story is by Bob Kane, right. regardless of who actually wrote and drew that thing. Um, so I think over the years, as you know, we've refined the crediting process that is used today. You know, going back and and trying to adjudicate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the authorship of of those stories. Uh, first of all, it it varies from issue to issue, story to story. Okay. Um, you know, and so broadly, I think the only credit you can really give to most of that material is by Stanley and Jack Kirby, mm -hmm. because uh, you know, the way that and the amount each man contributed to issue 10 might be markedly different from issue 12 and certainly different from issue 60 or issue 90. Um, okay. That having been said, in the broadest sense, yeah. um, you know, uh, if I was to define it today in the broadest sense, the way I would credit Stan is as editor and scripter. Yeah. And the way I would credit Kirby today would be as plotter and penciler. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and uh, it's not like uh, Stan didn't have a voice into the stories uh, and even what a particular story was. You know, there are there are there are moments, there are stories in Fantastic Four that I can sort of fairly confidently say, oh, the the nugget of that didn't come from Jack. Yeah. Um, you know, the the obvious sort of example being. Uh, the issue that Doctor Strange shows up in, because right. while while Jack was probably aware that Doctor Strange was a character that Marvel had introduced and was publishing, he had no particular connection with that character. And it's almost certainly Stan going, "We want to promote this new character we're doing, Jack. Can we can we feature him in the next issue of Fantastic Four, like we just did with the Avengers and we're about to do with the X Men?" Right. Um, so I can look at things like that and go, "That was probably." Uh, 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 a lead choice, at least at the outset. That having been said, the actual story they did in that issue, uh, I'm sure that Kirby was doing the lion's share of the plotting, although they probably talked it over in a way no different than I would speak with a, with a writer today about an issue of Fantastic Four. We might talk about the story and I might make a bunch of suggestions or I might tell the current writer, Dan Slott, hey, can we put Doctor Strange in this issue because yeah. X, Y, and Z, and here's what's going on with Doctor Strange and so forth. But uh, again, at the most basic level, I would I would credit Jack as plotter and penciler today most of the time, and Stan as editor and scripter most of the time. Yeah. Whose decision was it, uh, or was it, I guess was it Stan's to start crediting, uh, putting credit boxes on there, and why? That would have been that would have been Stan. It takes them about nine or ten issues before they start doing that. The very early FF issues, and I think the first Hulk and a few other things, have like signatures, like yeah. almost like they've signed the splash pages. And in those early stories, uh, you know, those stories are multi-chaptered, so they sign every splash page, every right. every five pages. Mm -hmm. They it's signed again, and a lot of those Kirby signatures aren't actually Kirby's. 
Um, oh, it's man. it's somebody it's somebody else in the office, and it may even have been Stan himself uh, writing in, you know, whatever Jay Kirby. Um, so so Jack wasn't signing them. Stan uh, 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 started crediting. I think it's around FF nine or ten. Um, that's not the first time comics had done credits, but it's the first time that they were done sort of uniformly across the line. Well, why and might I think, why might Stan have wanted to do that? Like, what would be the motivation? Well, I think some of it is. Stan was trying to build a brand and, mm. and part of that brand was Marvel, but part of that brand was also Stan as a part of Marvel. Mm. Uh, and mm. so in, in crediting people, not only could he, uh, you know, sort of create this sort of, uh, friendly chummy club like atmosphere with the, yeah. with the readers, you know, that's also the point at which on the letters pages, he stopped, you know, running letters that said, dear editor, as all the other comics did. And he changed all the salutations to dear Stan and Jack. Yeah. Um, and the idea was that as you were writing in and getting responses on the letters page, you were having one-to-one communications with Stan and Jack. Most yeah. often Stan, because he was the one writing those pages. Yeah. But that was the ambiance. And it was all sort of like making the experience a little more intimate and a little more uh, friendly and personable. Uh, and that was a big part of, of Marvel's overall success. Like the this, this, this sort of uh, 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 juxtaposition of... Uh, you know, crazy circus-like hyperbole, and, yeah. and and this sort of self-effacing. We're just a bunch of idiots who make mistakes in all of our comics, and yeah. just trying to do good things. And you know, please forgive us. Um, that, that 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 kind of made the 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 creators into personalities, as opposed yeah. to sort of like faceless cogs. I mean, certainly as a fan, as a kid, you know, I grew. I was born in 1970, so when I would read comics in the 70s, like. Uh, reprints and stuff. I got emotional attachments to the names because of that. I I would be loyal or excited by the names in the comics. I would be like, you know, even down to the inkers. You know, if you're like a super nerd, you like get excited sure. about the details. Uh, uh, we read those digests. Will and I had the uh, little like Walden books or uh, whatever uh, digest collections of the first six issues of FF and the first we had three volumes of Spider Man. And yep. I remember reading the caption boxes just because there were jokes in there. So I'd be like, I'm reading this part. Yeah. Yep. Uh, like distinct memories of making fun of Sam Rosen and all that stuff. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that was that was just another way too that that uh, you know Stan made it personable. He made all of the the, the creators into characters. Um, now, and in a lot well, of cases, those characters don't necessarily entirely you know encapsulate or line up with who the individuals actually were. Yeah. But you know the Don Heck of the bullpen Bolton's page is, you know, a cartoon, an abstraction of the Don Heck who lived on Long Island and drew Iron Man. Yeah, right. Um, Kevin, do you have a question or can I go to a, go, the next go. one? Okay. Another, another big one. An insanely broad question, Tom. Why <laughs> do you think Marvel Comics in the 60s hit? Like, why did they work? And could, Because it seems to me that they were sort of small time in a way to start with compared to DC. And then by the end of the 60s, they're mammoth. Like, what happened? How'd they do it? Um, well, you know, uh, again, this has been discussed ad nauseum to kind of just boil it down. I'm, I'm curious for your opinion. Like, just, again, you, the informed, I feel like you are good at articulating this since you're both the fan and the editor. Yeah. Well, um, you know, trying to, trying to boil it down to like the sort of soundbite version. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what Lee and Kirby and Ditko and the other founders really did, uh, was to expand the kind of stories that you could do in comics. Uh, and they did that by, essentially taking the sort of superhero characters that had been very one-dimensional up to that point. Not 
indistinct from one another, but there wasn't a whole lot of there there when you come down to who was wearing the costume of the Flash or Green Lantern or Batman or whomever. Um, you know, they pretty much were the costume and powers. And the interesting thing was whatever situation or fix they got themselves into. Uh, and and Lee and Kirby and Ditko uh, made it all about the people inside the costume and made them, uh, you know, a, a, a little more human and gave them foils and gave them situations and problems to deal with that were a bit more relatable. Um, you know, they would spend pages, particularly on on Spider-Man. Ditko would spend pages, page after page of Spider-Man as Peter Parker going yeah. to school, interacting with Aunt May or hanging out at the Daily Bugle. Yeah. Or occasionally um, have a whole issue where that happened. Every now and then it would be a whole issue of buildup. And then the next issue yeah. would be all the fighting. And, and, you know, that was completely different from what anybody else was, was doing. Um, you know, your time, your time with Hal Jordan was sort of like marking time for half a page until something would happen. And he had to like put on the ring and go fight it as Green Lantern. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not like those, those characters are, are bad or anything, but the Marvel experience was just more visceral on top of which, um, partly because Kirby was such an action oriented creator. Um, you know, when the comics code came in in the mid fifties, uh, DC really pulled back in order to sort of salvage and keep their business going. And you can look at almost any issue of any superhero comic done in the 50s to the very early 60s. It's rare to find somebody throw a punch in one of those comics. Hmm. There's lots of solving puzzles. There's lots of a villain or a criminal has crafted a, a thing and there's a mystery and there's a secret and there's something that has to be unlocked or figured out. But often the resolution, there's maybe one punch where the hmm. good guy knocks out the bad guy and it's really more about the hero overcoming problems or obstacles. Yeah. Um, Kirby's stories and Stan's stories didn't have a lot of time for puzzles and obstacles. Um, you know, Kirby's characters punched each other a lot. Uh, <laughs> and that seems, and that seems like such a basic thing, particularly in a superhero story. Yeah. But, but you know, the other outfits were so gun shy still after nine or 10 years uh, of operating under the code that that the business could go under, that they were afraid to do that. Uh, and I think Stan either didn't know better or figured there was nothing to lose. And, you know, he let Kirby be Kirby. And so those early Marvel comics, they're way more exciting and action-oriented and, and physical than anything else as well. So not only were they more emotionally engaging – they were just more uh, uh, electric to an audience to read. You know, one of the exercises that we do once in a while, I do a, uh, a weekly reading circle at Marvel where we, my, myself and the young editors, you know, read books that we're putting out and, hmm. and analyze them and take them apart. And oh, every, really? every year or two, um, you know, I, I, you know, we switch gears to, to, to do older comics of different eras to expose some of the younger people to these stories that they may not have read. Uh, and one of the things that I've done a couple of times is I've had the, 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 the crew read you know, an issue, an, a very early issue of Spider-Man and that month's issue of Superman that just happened, whatever issue it was that happened to be out that same uh, month, that same week. Yeah. And go, OK, compare and contrast, because it's so hard after 60 years to really see the difference, like the difference between yeah. a Marvel and a DC book today 
is not really that pronounced. You know, yeah. it, it really based. It, it's ultimately often the same talent pool that goes back and forth between the two companies. Yeah. The approaches have become much more homogenous, uh, and it really just boils down to you know editorial. Uh, 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 point of view yeah. and and like, creative point of view that 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 separates the two. But in the '60s, these could not be more different products for all that they're both superhero comics. Yeah, I love it. I I love the idea that Marvel was born on the Things fist. Like, <laughs> I mean, what I what I what we were struck by is Kevin and I we went over every issue of Kirby's FF and every Ditko Spider Man for the beginning of this podcast. That's how this was born. Yep. And I was struck by how um, almost like homemade in a good way the FF seemed. It seemed like there was there was they seemed reckless and indie and like one is especially the FF like yeah just there seemed to be so many ideas thrown in tones would ch- tone would change from issue to issue pace would change but it, it, to me it felt exciting as a reader like oh I yep. don't. Uh, it felt like I unfiltered Lee and Kirby. These guys are just, what do they think is fun? There's not like an overseeing school board telling them to behave. Uh, I could sense it as a reader and I love it. It didn't feel to me like until the frightful four showed up that it started to find its, which is a little before Galactus and the Inhumans and all that stuff. It was like when the frightful four showed up, I was like, it's starting to now feel like it's got a consistent, it, like it knows its own voice. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, all the elements right. were before that, but it was so, some of that was changing anchors and things like that, I guess, but it just, you didn't know what kind of comic you were going to get. Well, well, it's also that a lot of the early Marvel stuff, you could see it in almost every strip from the, from the sixties. It takes, you know, Stan and the artists a few issues to figure out what it is that they're doing. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's why, you know, you can see things like Iron Man changes his armor like three times in the first year as they try to get one that, okay, this isn't working, that the books aren't selling well enough. Maybe we need to change the look of the character. Maybe we yeah. need to, you know, give him different powers and make him giant man instead of ant man. Maybe right. we need to. The Hulk you know, would th- change so much issue to issue in the early in the early issues. Yeah, they're they're really just scrambling around trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, what what will work better, and what will really connect. And once they find something that connects, how do we do more of that? How do we how do we capitalize on that? Do you ever are you ever like I'm putting a lot of assumptions in this question, so feel free to <laughs> even disagree with what I'm assuming here. But do you feel like jealous of that freedom? Like you as an editor now, storytellers, you have. 50 years of continuity to be loyal to. There's a whole MCU that is informing your reader's expectations. Stan and Jack could just like change the Hulk's powers for mission in the very early days. Right. And like they, they kept a lot of that freedom throughout the sixties. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't feel especially jealous of it because I kind of feel like if I really want to do most uh, anything like that, that I want to do, I can. So, yeah. you know, we're not so one of the things that we talk about a lot at Marvel is that you kind of, you know, we call it, you have to be able to break the toys. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't be too uh, precious or gentle with, you know, this raw story material that is all the characters and their histories and their backgrounds and so yeah. forth. Because if you do, the stories get boring and the audience goes away. Um, you know, for all that it, it is often frightening to the audience, you yeah. know, what, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? Oh, they're screwing up this character. Oh, they're killing this you know, the fact that there is that engagement and that emotional engagement is what drives uh, the passion for the stories we tell. Uh, and so, 
Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think twice about changing the Hulk's powers. Um, you know, I, I would try to do so in a way that was commensurate with the 60 years that, you know, came before mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily just do it because I was doing it in the manner that Stan and Jack did early on as they were trying to figure out what would work. Yeah. But uh, I, I wouldn't feel so limited. Everything is certainly informed by everything. Yeah. But even in terms of things like the, the MCU, you know, our our job in in publishing in, in comics is is not to echo what they're doing in the films. It's to be out in front and be the spear point and yeah. be coming up with the ideas that two, three, five, ten years from now they'll be able to to harvest and and use in the the MCU. Um and you can kind of see that, you know, as as you know, they've gone along. Yeah. Um you know, and the and the window gets a lot smaller. You know, I I myself edited the Winter Soldier stories in Captain America and now there's like three movies and yeah. a and a Disney show about to start that's all, you know, picking Inspired up by on yeah, on on similar ideas. Um, so that's, you know, we don't necessarily feel limited by uh, the greater exposure and the range that, that, good, that those, yeah. th those films have. It's it's they're, they're sort of an empowerment to you can't just do what they're what they're doing there. You have to go beyond. You have to do new things because, yeah. you know, one day Kevin Feige is going to need to make another movie. And, yeah. you know, if he's got a whole bunch of things to look at, that at least gives him inspiration. And, and, and there's there's something to draw on. That's already sort of you know time and and audience tested. The uh, uh, Winter Soldier is a great uh, topic uh, in the sense that I loved the uh, I don't know if it came from your blog or from Brubaker's interviews that the conversations you guys had about would this would this work and I, if if I remember correctly and you correct all this please was that yep. uh, if you're going to take away the loss of Bucky from Captain America you've got to give him. He's got to have something else to regret and feel bad. Like you can't take it completely away. So it's got to be like a still this wound. horrific thing that oh, I wish Bucky didn't become the Winter Soldier because of me. It was such like a smart, insightful way to like, all right, if we're going to do this, what it, what what replaces that that right, thing? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about uh, – and that's a good example of the kind of process we try to use. Um, you know, it's all about trying to be additive. Um, you know, that and, and part of this is like right before us, you know, a creative team or two or three back. I forget how many uh, when the when the book was in another editorial office, there was a moment where they wanted to bring Bucky back. And I argued against it vociferously. Like, <laughs> I I was like, nope. And, and part of that had to do with the way they wanted to do it. I didn't mm -hmm. feel like it was genuine. It felt like it, it felt like stunting to me, like they'll do it and. Once they're done, there's no there's no there there. Like okay, once he's back, so what? He's yeah. he's there and he's an old mean? man in a VIA hospital or whatever. And like, what do you get out of that other than the headline, the momentary headline of oh my god, they brought Bucky back? Yeah. So you know when Ed showed up wanting to do, you know, a version of that same idea, you know, the conversations he and I had were you boiled down to. Ed, I have a lot of concerns with this. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, well, like, list them. And I listed, like, I don't know, 15 things. <laughs> um, and he went away, and, you know, a week or however long later, he came back, and he had an answer for every one of my questions. It's this. It works this way. This is what we get. This, nice. is, this, is, this is how it's, it's additive rather than subtractive. 
And I read over the thing and I kind of sighed and went, okay, I guess we're going to do this story now. <laughs> and, pretty crazy. And, and we did it and it all worked out pretty well. So, you know, that's, but that's the kind of thing, you know, we do this on a day-to-day -day basis. Every story that we're, we're doing has an idea that somebody is excited about. And, you know, we weigh that idea and try to harness and refine it so that you get the best version of it and that we've thought it through enough that we're not accidentally uh, diminishing any of the, the characters or the situations by subtraction, but always hopefully opening up new avenues and new storytelling possibilities. Yeah, it's I, I just I think about it all the time when it's like, uh, especially whenever like a big thing happens in comics where it's like this character's coming back or uh, this character's going away. It's just this question of like, okay, well, we want to bring Uncle Ben back. How, doesn't that hurt Spider-Man? How do we not have that hurt Spider-Man? And you have to like answer that before you can do that thing. And if you can't answer it, you shouldn't bring him back. And uh, right, right, I mean, exactly. That's a crazy example, but uh. well, like I think back. So I started reading comics. Kevin and I, uh, I don't know, like in, so throughout the seventies, I would buy stuff. But really, early eighties is when I would go to the comic shop every week and just get them. Right. So yep. shooter era Marvel. Yep. Um. And then Kevin basically never stopped. He has read every comic book since then, and he has kept me connected to it. Um, and I'm just trying to think of some of the big changes that would happen. So, like, you know, um, the Dark Phoenix saga, right? Like, Phoenix gets killed. That was, like, a big change. Then all the Secret Wars changes. Spidey in the black costume. Things not in the FF. Then the Spidey clone stories of the early 90s. Um, these are all kind of like big swings of various degrees of, of not being precious with the continuity. Or just I gotta even say, heroes, as a fan, I love it. Uh, uh, heroes Reborn, taking the Avengers and the FF away into a pocket universe. Right. And, and letting things like, which without that, there's no Thunderbolts, which is one of the best uh, uh, comics. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love um, it. I mean, it's so as a, great. As a fan, I love seeing big swings, but I think you have to... Also, then there's the possibility of it not working. I think like the 90s clone stuff in Spidey, that's pretty much seen as like, I don't know, people don't like that, right? But I'm like, well, they had to take a swing at it because they can't just be redoing the same Spidey stories forever. So the spirit of it, I applaud, even if I don't always like the result. Well, the, 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 the real fact, too, is while it's not impossible, um, it's very difficult to permanently ding one of these characters. You know, they've been around, they've been around for 60 years. They're, they're very, uh, uh, they're very sturdy. Uh, yeah. and so you can do a bad story. Yeah. Um, you can do any number of bad stories. It's very difficult to get that stuff to really stick to them. Um, yeah. if it's, if it, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work, sometimes it happens. Um, Hank Pym has not been able to at all move past the idea that he slapped his wife, um, you know, yeah. and despite the fact that they're, you know, in 60 years, there's like three comics in which that's a thing. Yeah. Uh, but but, you know, those made such a strong impact on the audience uh, and that character, you know, it was the most interesting thing that had happened to that character, that that became his one line description. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you, nobody else could move past it. But it, almost any every, everything else, um, you know, it, it, it's it's transitory. You know, if it works, there's more of it. If it doesn't work, it gets moved away from and maybe it gets referenced years down the line or, or not. But, uh, you know, it's very difficult to hurt them by by smashing them together in, in, in this way. 
Um, you know, for again, for all that the audience is very invested in them as characters and doesn't want to see bad things happen to them and certainly doesn't want to see, you know, their favorite either written out, killed, turned into a villain, uh, you know, or, or, or you know, whatever. Um, you know, and I can understand that I was a reader too, and I certainly didn't like Spider-Man's black costume at, at the time. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. I, I, I was not on board with, with that <laughs> at, at all. Really? I, I, we, this is, this is, we were reading those comics at the time and I think I was intrigued. I think I was excited. I was a 13 year old. I think when this happened, I think I was maybe curious is the best way to put it. I, I wanted to know more. Sure. I was right. not and mad. I, it's not like I have any. Right. I have no problem with it now, but, but, you know, no, again, I as a reader that. and as a, as a person at, at the time, you know, my I take was Spider-Man has the, has like the best design costume in, in, in comics and you're going to change it I and you're going to change it into that. And, and no, that feels, it feels, it felt almost sacrilegious at <laughs> in, in the moment. Like, no, yeah. don't, don't, why are you doing that? That don't. Yeah. Um, and again, ultimately it all worked out. It was all fine. And it's now fine. And now it's just a piece of things. And yeah, you know, it you found get its venom place. And you get carnage and you get all this other stuff out of those stories. And it's not like we don't, you know, every every two years go back and do stories of Spider-Man in that black costume. Because for all that it was such a thing to me, for a big part of the audience like yourselves and, and for people yeah. that were reading there, it was an exciting thing or an intriguing thing. And, yeah. you know, I've certainly had arguments with people who love that comic more than the red and blue. Uh, uh, oh, I wouldn't say that. Outfit. I still like the red and blue, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, we're not crazy. Uh, I remember <laughs> Wiz wizard magazine did something in the nineties where they were like, what are the top 30 superhero costumes? Kevin, I don't know if you remember this, No, but, um, Number one was Spider-Man Red and Blue. And I th they interviewed some, I don't know how they picked, some like collection of creators. But Todd McFarlane was one of them. And Todd's quote was, if Spider-Man's Red and Blue costume is not your number one superhero costume, you will lose all credibility in this list. <laughs> like it's such an insanely successful and unique design that it's got to be number one. And I remember just like, I'd never, I loved Spider-Man, but I'd never maybe given reverence <laughs> to the visual design. I mean, I'm not an illustrator or an artist, so I don't necessarily think about visual design, but I was like, yeah. oh, I guess this Spidey costume is revered by creators as, as <laughs> designers in a way. Uh, the, the idea of permanently dinging a character, Will, uh, reminds me of my pitch to, for the Punisher controversy to okay, put yeah. all the power into making him into a Jar Jar Binks-like character. <laughs> For years and years and years until that, that'd be the only way, that'd be the only way to, to uh, remove people misappropriating that character. To and, deliberately and, and, undermine him. Yes. And even, and even there, I don't know that, that that would work. It's the only chance. The only chance yeah. would be uh, uh, turning the character into a goofball character, putting out failed TV show after failed TV show where he is a comic relief character spending but, billions. I think what that's, Tom is saying that is that the character as it exists, that's the one that would be remembered. Yeah, I know. They, would just, they would just still ignore this version. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, again, hopefully we're able to, to navigate this in, in other ways that are successful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I certainly, that that can be done a lot more swiftly than the fifty years it would take for your plan to to reach the. Well, I, my fifty year plan though is iron tight. I say so. <laughs> <laughs> iron tight. You're gonna you're gonna destroy the Punisher. Yeah. Um, it, it takes fifty billion dollars and fifty years, but I could do it. I yeah. I don't think you're. I don't think anyone's gonna hire you based on this. All right. Well. Pitch. Um, so let's see here. Uh, do you, Kevin, do you have any other sort of just broadly comics-wide questions for Tom? I mean, I could keep going, but I feel like maybe we should get into the FF issues. Um, 
Real cool. Who was who was editor in chief when you started? When you started as an editor, uh, when when I started the EIC was Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco. Okay. Nice. So was, was that just after Shooter or? Uh, yeah, I I started in in uh, I interned in the summer of '89 and I was hired by the December of '89, uh, and Jim was out in I think it was like Jan April '87. And um, uh, uh, what create what 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 books are you sort of under your purview? like your direct preview now. I know FF is, uh, what else? Well, today, uh, you know, I, I, I hands-on edit uh, Avengers and most titles that have Avengers in the title. So Savage Avengers and Avengers Mech Strike that just came out and so mm -hmm. forth. Fantastic Four, uh, Iron Man, um, and, and then a bevy of other other stuff. And then, you know, sort of under my group's umbrella, oh, I, oh Captain America, um, under my group's um, umbrella, there's, you know, other other, you know, I call the, I say junior editors, even though, you know, some of them are, are relatively seasoned and, and high up like Will Moss, who edits Hulk and Thor um, and, and uh, you know, champions. Well, we do a lot of Smith edits champions. And um, so it's it's kind of uh, what we think of internally as the Marvel heroes uh, yeah. uh, office. So it's not X-Men. It's not Spider-Man. It's not the the ground level Daredevil guys. It's it's pretty much all the Avengers sorts of characters. The Avengers yeah. and the FF are the are the spine. It's the Heroes Reborn office. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, what's the secret to a good FF story? What's the one um, thing? Well, uh, I think. <laughs> I mean, that, I know there's no one thing, but how would yeah, you? Yeah, but I, I I I think the you know the secret to a good FF story is the juxtaposition of the fantastic and the commonplace. The 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 familial relationships among those characters uh, set against uh, a, 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 an adventure of exploration and innovation uh, and tackling some sort of weird or or cosmic or far-reaching or brain-expanding situation, mm -hmm. but uh, in a in a very uh, personal and uh, family next door kind of a way. Let's. I think we should talk uh, about 177. 178, 179 real quick. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. Hey, it's us again, your hosts, Kevin and Will Hines, and we want to hear from you. That's right. You can email us at screwitspidey at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at screwitcomics. We also have an Instagram account where we post images from the comics that we talk about, and that's screwitcomics on Instagram. That's three different ways to connect with us. Tell us your thoughts about the issues we're talking about or the format of the show or our life choices that have led us to this point. Reach out and tell us anything, honestly, and we might talk about it on a future episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. We're back. So, yeah, so I think let's talk about issues 170 since we're just talking about FF and what makes good FF comics. So these were the first Marvel comics that you, like, remember – getting into or and let me let me preface this i'm sorry kevin tom one of the reasons we really excited to have you as a guest obviously marvel editor you know you got the credentials and the pedigree to talk comics but because of your blog which kevin and i are super <laughs> fans of you're like you're such an impassioned fan with such like a good clear memory of stories and why you liked stories that's 
uh, weirdly, that to me is your biggest credential <laughs> as somebody to talk to you about. Like, you're just such a, an impassioned reader of these things. So really, that's we're, we're looking to delve into that that side of your speaking as a reader and a fan to these things. I mean, of sure. course, we're happy to hear anything you have to say yeah. about What about them, this like, arc? That was my going to be my question. It was like, what yes. about this arc made you go, I want more of this. I want to, I'm going to keep reading FF. Well, I got to do the, I got to do the background on this. Sure. First, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> a, a little bit, you know, to kind of, to kind of set the table. I started reading comics in 1973. Okay. Uh, and I started, um, you know, my first comic was a, was a Julie Schwartz issue of Superman 268. Um, and I started buying comics, uh, you know, or really they were bought for me because I was only like six. Yeah. Um, you know, I started buying comics on a fairly regular basis and I sampled a little bit of everything in part because I only had so, so control over what might get bought. Um, my dad was, a was, a was, a not quite a chain smoker, but a heavy smoker. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we would end up stopping by the Seven Eleven to pick mm -hmm. up cartons of cigarettes on a regular basis. And sometimes often I would go in with him and I might be able to look at the comic rack and he'd say, yeah, okay, I'll buy you a comic. And I, I would pick it on other occasions. He we would just be stopping on the, on the way coming back from someplace with the family yeah. in the car and he'd go run in to, to, to get, you know, uh, uh his, his hit. And I'd say, oh, could you get me a comic? And he'd say, yeah, sure. And he would just grab whatever, whatever, yeah, there, there was. So, so you, know, you had you an always... issue of the defenders or an issue of the Flash or just something weird. Yeah, and so you know what I found as a as a young reader, a reader of six and seven and so forth, is I didn't like those Marvel books, mm. um, and and I didn't like them for any number of reasons. Part of it is just the style of of those uh, you know early to mid seventies titles. Um, you know, the DC books that I liked uh, in particular, and I didn't re realize this at the time, but I can look at it now and go, oh, okay, that's clearly the common denominator there. The thing that I liked at, at, of the DC books were, were the Julie Schwartz edited titles. Oh, interesting. So, so, you know, like the difference between Superman and World's Finest was pronounced to me as a kid. That, you know, I could read Superman or I could read action comics and get a Superman story that I liked and I would read World's Finest comics and it was weird and wrong in some way. <laughs> and I could yeah. never put my finger on what it was as a as a young reader. I just knew that that was, you know, that was like having a Hydrox rather than an Oreo. It looks <laughs> like the same thing, but it's not the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, what it really is, is, you know, I liked you know, the kind of books that Schwartz was making in the seventies. That was what appealed to me. Which, and what does that mean? Like character driven or what, what, how would we describe that? They, they, they often were, you know, very, very simple, very straightforward, very cleanly told adventures. Um, most stories were only an issue long, 14 pages in a lot of cases. If they were two parts long, uh, that was, that was okay. Sometimes you might even get three if you were really crazy. Um, mm -hmm. but even there, like I could pick up the second part and I often did of a, of a, of a Superman story and go in completely clean and feel like I had missed nothing and, and, uh, knew what was, what was happening and what was going on. It was very, um, not sim simplistic, but, but simple. Uh, yeah. and the Marvel books, tended to be a lot more chaotic. They were a lot less plot oriented and much more uh, uh, dialogue or emotion oriented. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the things that would happen to me routinely, and you can track this in the seventies, 
is uh, Marvel uh, uh, tended to have a lot of covers that had whoever the hero was in jeopardy. Uh, I do the I do the hyperbolic version of of, of the story where it's Captain America is being thrown into a volcano. <laughs> and I would get that comic and go, holy smoke, Cap's getting thrown into a volcano. How is he going to get out of this? And I would read 17 pages. And the last page of the book would be Cap is being thrown into the volcano <laughs> to be continued. And I would feel completely robbed because there was no, uh, no likelihood that I was going to be able to get the next issue. I'm just as frustrated now at the end of the comic as I was, yeah. you know, motivated to pick it up. Like I still don't know how cap's going to survive that <laughs> volcano. Uh, and you screwed me out of my 20 cents. Um, yeah. you know, so, so these sorts of things put me off of the Marvel books. I didn't like them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was vocal about that as a six or seven or <laughs> eight, eight year old, because I had to make sure that, you know, my, my dad and the people around me understood don't, Get me those comics. I want this kind. Yeah. I want Oreos, not Hydrox. Um, <laughs> you know, and and you know, to the point where you know, uh, any number of years later, uh, you know, my dad would bust my balls <laughs> for 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 reading any, any time that I would be reading or talking about Marvel stuff because oh, Marvel Marvel are bad, and uh, he didn't, <laughs> you know, he 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 passed away in the mid eighties. Um, you know, before I became a professional, but he would have spent the last 30 years giving me crap (laughs) over this, uh, you know, uh, uh, pitilessly, um, in a, in a, in a, in a good natured, but really, you know, sort of, sort of way. Um, so, so I wasn't, you know, I was not a Marvel reader up until, um, you know, like the summer of, of 78. Um, and you know, uh, during that time, I was certainly interested in in comic book history. Um, you know, that was the year. I'm sure you, as you guys know, of uh, the Treasury Edition, famous first editions that DC would put out. And like one of the earliest comics that I bought was the reproduction of Action Comics number one. I had read like yeah. six comics, and and my sixth comic was Action Comics number one. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I would buy or it would be you know, would be bought for me different books on the history of comics or on old comic stories. And I had, yeah. uh, Julie Pfeiffer's great comic book heroes, uh, collection from the sixties, like the, huh. one of the first, if not the first collection of old superhero stories. I don't think I, I don't think I know that one. It was published in 1965. Um, and it, it collected, uh, you know, a, a single installment from all of the main heroes that, that Jules Pfeiffer liked. Huh. So a lot of the DC characters, the formative uh, three Marvel characters, Torch, Namor, and Cap, uh, mm-hmm. the Spirit, Plastic Man. Uh, he was able to get permission to run one page of Captain Marvel because at that point the lawsuit said you couldn't okay, do wow. Captain Marvel. Um, and and that, was, that was around, you know, that, 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 that book was in print and remaindered well deep into the 70s. Like it was wow. one of the few books you could get on comics. And I had a copy of that. And I had a copy of of the Stranko History of Comics volume, um, but in each of those, I didn't read the Marvel stories, <laughs> uh, and I didn't read them because I didn't like Marvel. So why would I waste my time reading each pages <laughs> of of Captain America, even though yeah. I have it on my on my shelf? Is this and what this you said was, when you got your internship? Is this the story you told to like, get an internship? <laughs> you know, this this was not that story. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but um, you know, so the the summer of '78, um, you know, there must have been some point at which you know, on some week, on some day, I was bored. Nothing was going on. Nothing was on TV on the three channels that you could get. Yeah. Um, there was no streaming. There was no video. There was no internet. Nobody else was around the neighborhood to do stuff with. Like there was not whatever. There was nothing going on, and so I decided. Ah, let me. I'll reread, you know, my my great comic book heroes and my history of comics. Uh, and this was the time that I actually read the Marvel stuff because I was desperate, dying for something to to read or do. So I read that Torch story and the Subby story and the Cap story, uh, and I liked the Torch story well enough. Like that was okay. that was all right. Um, and I had <laughs> known from I had picked up through Osmosis. Um, because I was around comics all the time, that the Human Torch was in the Fantastic Four, right. and so I thought to myself, well, maybe I should, I, you know, I should take another swing. How old are you this time? You like ten years old or something? I was, I, was, I would have been about eleven. I love so, what a fussy eleven-year-old you were. You were ex- su- already a super opinionated, <laughs> fussy, fussy consumer of comics. Oh yeah, on 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 this stuff, I I, I definitely was opinionated again, going all the way back yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to 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 my my starting days. So was Kevin. Kevin, you're like that too. You you would have strong opinions about these things. I feel I still do. I'm more loosey goosey. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can be talked into anything. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. You were saying, Tom. Right. So so in in my area, yeah, the local uh, drugstore that we used was a, it was a chain drugstore, and they had in it what in my in my memory is this big bin of, of comics. Um, it probably wasn't all that big uh, yeah. in, in real life, but in my memory, in my mind, uh, it was this colossal thing. And they were all older books. You know, they were all not current issues. They were, uh, you know, nine months to two years older. Um, I've since worked out that what was going on here was these were uh, returns, that were meant uh, to be destroyed, uh, uh, you know, and 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 already written off for credit. That somebody had sold, you know, was selling right. through the drugstore chain off the back of the truck and yeah. cutting a second profit on. Yeah. But as a consumer, I didn't care because they were selling them for like six for a buck. Right. And so the next time, sometime further on in that week, my mom had occasion to go by that drugstore, and we went there, and I dug through this bin of comics. And it was it all it was all exclusively Marvel books, like all they had every once in a while, uh, you know, a DC book or an Atlas book would 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 accidentally end up in the mix. Uh, and I know at previous, uh, you know, uh, occasions where we went to that drugstore, I would dig around and I would find like the only copy of Detective Comics that was in that stack. And that was what I was buying because I didn't like any of that other stuff. But. <laughs> I found I found the one good chip in the middle of that of right. that uh, of that cookie, um, but so this day I went and and I dug around and I came up with these three issues of Fantastic Four: 177, 178, 179. Uh, and at this point they were again about nine months old. Okay. Um, and I you know I we we took them home and I spread out in my living room, uh, you know, with my feet underneath the the coffee table. Uh, you know, and and I read these books and tried to make sense of them, and I enjoyed them a hell of a lot. Huh. Uh, and and so the next time we went back to the drugstore a few days later, I dug around in the bin again, and I came up with three issues of Marvel's Greatest Comics, which was the Fantastic Four reprint book. 
Yeah. Um, and I brought those home and I read those and I liked those. And so I started reading Fantastic Four. And technically, I started reading Fantastic Four and books The Torch was in. So I started <laughs> oh, yeah. reading Invaders. But, you know, if you asked me at that time, I was still like, I read DC books and Fantastic Four or right. and Invaders. But slowly as I did that, I began to branch out to everything else. All right. Um, you know, I was on the hunt for Origins of Marvel Comics because I wanted to read FF1. Yeah. Uh, and I never I never got a copy for years and years. I eventually read FF1 in that same that uh, paperback. Uh, uh, paperback of the first six issues that, yeah. that, that, that you guys had. It was funny um, back but, then, like you to find old issues was like a hunt. Like there was no Internet. Oh, yeah. you had to, it was like a whole thing that um, there weren't even really stores. Uh, you know, there there were you know, old stores that sold old comics, but they were much yeah. more spaced out. They didn't sell new books. It was much tougher to, to find this stuff. But my, my local library, uh, you know, we went to that regularly, and I they had a copy of Origins that was always checked out, and I never got it. But I was there one week, and they had Son of Origins of Marvel Comics. Yeah, And I, I can remember the 15 minutes or so I debated with myself as to whether or not I should take this book out of the library, <laughs> which is absurd because <laughs> it's a library. Yeah, it costs yeah. me nothing. Yeah. And yet I don't like, you know, this, this, this indoctrination that I've even done to myself that I don't <laughs> like Marvel. You know, I like fantastic four, but I don't, you know, and the thing that convinced me, and I swear this is true. Like I leave through, I flipped through the son of origins book. And there in the first Avenger story, there's like three panels where the FF show up. Rick Jones has tried to get in touch with the Fantastic Four and Loki has bounced the signal so that Thor and Iron Man and the other guys uh, come and form the Avengers. You. But eventually, yeah, he's a <laughs> rascal. Um, <laughs> but eventually, like, the, you know, the, he's able to get through to the FF and the FF say, well, like, we're in, we're, we're in the middle of other stuff. We can't help you right now, but we think some other guys are coming and they're going to form the Avengers and that's the thing. And so just the fact that those three panels were there was enough to get me to go, okay, I'll take this book out of my library and I guess I'll read it. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then from there, you know, I started buying, you know, whatever, X-Men and Avengers and Daredevil and, you know, eventually was buying everything pretty much from both companies for years. What was it about the Torch uh, and or the FF that like, was it just the visual of him? Well, that that Golden Age story, you know, it's a it's a pretty simple story. It's in some ways in that on that level, it's closer to a Julie Schwartz DC book story of the 70s. There's not a lot of personality to it uh, in terms of characterization. It's all sort of action. But I just you know, I wasn't like I, I, I talk about this stuff like I was a discerning reader. I yeah. wasn't a discerning reader. I liked it because I liked it. I read it and I yeah. enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was also like the Cap story was the first Cap story, so it was mm -hmm. the origin. The Namor, the Namor story was a, a later story, but it was very much Namor as as enemy of the human race, and so mm. I didn't necessarily click with him. But the Torch story was also a later story, and he was battling this criminal called the Hag who had a plan, and he was yeah. like, you know, this was a superhero story. I I could understand, I could relate to that as a kid and go, ah, that's a thing I like. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, it's just reading these three issues of the FF 177, 178, 179. They are very not DC. The, yeah. It's, yeah. it's chaotic. It's crazy. It's silly. It's, you know, we've got Ronald Reagan showing up for a one panel <laughs> yep. a cameo. Yeah. Uh, we've got the uh, counter earth. We've got 
Tigra and Thundra, like like this extended family of the FF. There's so much going on. But still, it's all and and it was it was sort of a lucky happenstance that it's this three issues, because on the most basic level, like this these three, they're effectively a two-parter with threads that go over into the 179, which is sort of the start of another multi-part story. Um, so right there, it's a two-part story, and I got all of it. You know, starts with the yeah. frightful four, ends with the frightful four, uh, and 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 even within that. The basic gimmick of the story is probably the most DC-esque of any Fantastic Four story of that era, where oh, the Frightful Four capture them, and then they hold auditions for their fourth <laughs> member. And it's, <laughs> and it's a wonderful parade of goofball characters, many of whom have come back and, and other stuff has been done with, but that so are just you know, goofy throw throw offs of, 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 of this, of this situation. Let's say it, let's say it for the people who are listening to this in case they haven't read these issues, what's the overall plot here? You kind of just said it, but let me ask you to say it again. Like what is okay. the overall story of these three issues? The plot uh, really is uh, the FF come back from a, from a mission in space. They just fought Galactus again on counter earth uh, and they come back and they they discover that in their absence, the frightful four of which there is currently only three, <laughs> uh, have have taken over their headquarters in the Baxter building. So they head back home. Uh, the Frightful Four get the jump on them because they've been there. They, they've got the place booby-trapped and so forth. Uh, and they imprison the FF. And in a very like mid-1970s uh, uh, twist, as, as you know, this sort of, of terrorism was going on at the time, you know, the idea of, you know, you're, you're, you know, kidnapping and holding for ransom was a big, uh, a headline issue in the 70s. So the Frankful Four decide they're going to hold the FF for, for like a million dollars ransom against the city of New York. In the meantime, they're trying to fill out their ranks with a fourth member because they've been betrayed by Medusa and they've been betrayed by, by Thunder in the past. And so they've, <laughs> they've put a classified ad in the <laughs> Daily Bugle saying you know frightful four looking for a looking for fourth member you know must have superpowers audition at baxter building such and such and so audition you know, at the baxter building yeah That's audacious it is it is and it, yeah. and and you have to really ask yourself how stupid yeah. these villains must have been to like line up in the baxter <laughs> building the fantastic four live here it's the worst place for you to yeah, be yeah yeah and you and not only are you there, you're in like a nice straight line waiting for your number to be called so that the wizard will, will usher you up in the <laughs> elevator and you can show them what they can do. Um, anyway, um, you know, one of the characters that shows up in this audition is is the Brute. And the Brute is a big purple super strong monster who is secretly the Reed Richards of Counter-Earth, the planet right. they just come, come from. Yeah. So he's the evil Reed from, from the, the alternate uh, world. And he ends up joining the Frightful Four. Uh, Thunder and Tigress show up along the way, you know, coming in under the ruse of, of, of this audition to try to help the FF out. There's a big brouhaha at the, in the middle of which uh, Reed loses his stretching powers. He had been losing them in the series for about a year at that point, slowly getting less and less uh, rubbery. Mm. Uh, he loses them in the middle of the fight. Uh, and then at the end of those two issues, they beat the Frightful Four, uh, and and good Reed has thrown evil Reed into the negative zone, or so they think, uh, right. because actually the brute has 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 uh, taken Reed's identity, thrown the real Reed into the negative zone, and is now living among the FF as as a traitor within because 
he's still got the hots for Sue and his yeah. Sue on counter earth is in a coma. Um, right. So he's now looking for a way that he can surreptitiously polish off the other two dudes and, and be alone with, with his, his pseudo wife. While meanwhile, the real Reed with no powers is stranded in the negative zone, having to eat uh, flying bat creatures that he catches and <laughs> roasts on his homemade fire. Yeah. Uh, and, and ultimately being confronted by Annihilus in the negative zone at the end of 179. I got to say, a, it is so it's funny a, it's a to real, me. real uh, superior Spider-Man like uh, uh, yeah. switch there. Um, I got to say, Tom, it's like it is so funny to me to hear that very young Tom, the reader, like these simple Julie short stories because you have brought to us the exact opposite of that. <laughs> I have a very high tolerance for like complicated plots and like backstories and like I'm, I'm down, like I'm into dense stories. Um, but I lost track of what was going on a couple of times reading this <laughs> and I had to like go back and be like, wait, so this is the who and like, did he really lose the stretching powers and was a reason given? No, no reason was given. Okay, fine. Right. And right. how did he get in the negative zone? And, and, and so, some of these questions ended up getting explained and some didn't, I mean, I had a blast. I am really into right. Here's a here's a real These question. Stories, but I don't know how clear, it got, I don't know how clearly, it hooked you. Clearly, I was I was a more perceptive reader at eleven mm -hmm. than you I are see, now yeah. at whatever age it is. <laughs> yeah, I I don't doubt it. Yeah. Uh, here's a very precise, maybe unimportant question: the 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 cowboy who could turn into a tornado, the Texas Twister, I think, or something yep. like that. Texas Twister shows yeah. up, and he talks about that he's auditioned for another team. Yep. What is that That's a reference it. to? He has he this this was his first and only appearance up, up to this crazy. Up, up to up to this point. Yeah. He did he did return a bunch of times. The other <laughs> outfit that he had auditioned for was Shield. He okay. eventually becomes one of the super agents of Shield in Captain right. America and then eventually <laughs> goes on to be a member of the Rangers, the Southwestern super team that's him and Shooting Star and the Phantom Rider and Red Wolf and uh you know who 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 <laughs> operate out of Texas. It so, just felt like Roy Thomas was like making a nod, like this is a character from like I don't know, auditioned for the Legion of Superheroes or something. <laughs> well, he uh, sounded like of, it sounded like of, we should know, but I was like, I don't know. I he kind it. of may have been making a reference. He, either he or or George Perez, who who yeah. drew it, because again, these were these books were produced, you know, Marvel method, which meant Roy wrote a plot or talked over a plot with George. Probably wrote it because Roy was pretty meticulous at this stuff, and then George went away, drew the seventeen pages brought them into Roy, you know, drawing them however he, he chose to paste them and adding whatever incident he wanted. Uh, and then Roy would go back and dialogue them from the art. Uh, and so, you know, again, even here, you know, without asking Roy or George, I couldn't tell you for sure who came up with the Osprey or the Texas Twister or Captain Ultra or all these guys. Um, other, you know, other than, you know, did Roy have those specific beats in the plot? Uh, how much did he have? Certainly, George designed them all as as characters mm -hmm. in the story. Um, but you know, uh, uh, you know, Roy may have may have identified. You know, the first guy that comes in is the Osprey, and he's got these sort of chicken wings, and yeah. he doesn't really have any powers, but he he, he wants to be a supervillain. And um, you know, so you know that 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 sort of loose collaboration was a hallmark of the Marvel books for years and years and years. In some ways, it's too loosey goosey. Like a lot of the Marvel stories of this era um, aren't really so much stories as a couple of fight scenes joined by supporting cast scenes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, they're really relatively plot light 
as compared to you know the equivalent books from everywhere else. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know they were often funnier, like the Marvel books of this period, uh, and going back to the '60s. You know, one of the things Stan really brought to superhero comics was a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, that while he, you know, while the events of the story are taken seriously in that they're appropriately dramatic and there are real stakes yeah. and so forth, you know, the situations and the characters could be could be funny, could be dopey, could be goofy. Um, and that was and that was okay. And that was just way more entertaining. You know, well, there's, like, there's I, moments in this book where the F, the FF spend a lot of these three issues tied up, like they're they're captured yeah. by the frightful four, and they're just sort of watching the frightful four audition people for a lot <laughs> of the. A, and they're they're trapped on a giant fan. Like, why do they have a giant <laughs> fan in their laboratory there yeah. that you could hang four people from? Uh, I, I don't know why Reed needed it. You know, he was putting out a really big bonfire. Maybe the torch had gotten angry or something, but like they've got. He's and, anticipating something, you know, maybe and, like they saw some alien race of wind creatures and Reed's like, we got to have something ready. And George draws this thing like twice. There's like two pages. They're not quite splashes, but they're two thirds page splashes of yeah. this enormous fan with the FF all like hung up on it in different in different restraints i'm a huge fan in ff stories where there's something where there's individual <laughs> things for each of their powers like that yeah. happens like all the time in ff stories where like the scrolls put them all in rooms then they're each designed to contain whatever so yeah. the, the the giant fan has that right there's the the manacles for things hands and johnny's in a tank or whatever and i, I always sort of presume that it's never really stated in the in in the story i always sort of presume that if New York didn't come through with the money, they were just going to turn the fan on, and those guys were going to spin like crazy until they were dead. Um, uh, it's a it's a weird choice, and yet somehow like it's very memorable, it's very visual, and yeah. and it it still kind of works. But what a weird thing! The Frightful Four are such a weird group of characters. I feel like when they first showed up in FF. They shouldn't have worked, but they did feel like real threats to me, uh, whether it's just Stan constantly writing how they were threats or just K Kirby's art. Like uh, their first couple of appearances, I'm like, these guys shouldn't be close to the FF's power, but they are. But by this time, they just feel like comic relief villains. Complete like the leader jokes. is yeah. just a flat out comedy character, hates women because they keep betraying yeah. him. The, <laughs> the wizard, the wizard. The wizard. Sorry, I said the leader. Uh, yes, the yeah. wizard. Well, they, bo uh, they both have the tall heads. It's hard to the keep wingless, them. The wingless wizard. Sorry. Uh, they, they just, they've fallen on hard times, these poor guys. Another thing I about think these... that, oh, I think ahead, that too has, has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, they were being written here by, in, in this case, Roy, and Roy had encountered all three of those characters as a reader first. Yeah. He yeah. would have read the early wizard stories in uh, the Human Torch Strip in Strange Tales, and he would have read Sandman's first appearances in Spider-Man and so forth. And so his opinion of them... Uh, as characters may have you know mirrored what you guys are saying and adjusted how seriously he took them like to Roy the reader reading those first yeah. rifle four stories his take may have been oh this is crazy these these yeah. chumps can't possibly equal the <laughs> ff um and so now when it's his turn to 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 use them he plays them more comedically but again they're very much in in this story you know they're closer to not quite you know Batman TV show villains but they're of that that ilk 
they are villains on their tax returns, which they file. <laughs> they list their occupation as villainy, and this yeah. is why they put an ad in the paper to get their to get to get somebody else to join their crew, and why they have these inter interactions in that way. And in that way, they're not far off from like the Flash Rogues Gallery. So yeah. I I could look at them and go, right, I get this. I I totally see this. You know, there's the 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 brute comes from Counter Earth. I was coming from Julie Schwartz comics where the Justice League and the Justice Society come from Earth 1 and Earth 2 and I understood that perfectly. Yeah. So I got that. Like for all that this is there's there's a lot going on, you know, George fat packs those first two issues. They're so only 17 panels. pages long, but he fits a lot of incident in and none of them ever seem particularly crowded or or uh, difficult. I, to I love the art them. in these issues. The drawings are so great, I think. You know, when you talk um, about his splash pages having extra panels, it's like, of course, George Perez can't give up that much real estate. <laughs> 12 panels average per page. Well, in these days, they didn't have it. Like, these stories are only 17 pages long. Yeah. This is this is the, the shortest uh, period of, of Marvel stories. Um, but again, so so while you're absolutely right that there was a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there were things like I came out of this having questions like I, I couldn't <laughs> I didn't I didn't I didn't quite know. What Reed's name was like his, <laughs> okay. name, his name is Reed Richards and he's called Reed in a bunch of places and he's called Richards in a bunch of places, mostly when the wizard is talking to him and so forth. Yeah. And I, I knew I recognized Richard as a name like my uncle yeah. was Richard. Yeah. Uh, Reed was not a name I knew. So right. I was trying to puzzle out. Is his name Richard? Is his name? <laughs> How does that work? R R his last name is Richard, but yeah. I know Richard to be a first name. And there's a bunch of stuff like that in these early books that like, I didn't understand absolutely everything that was going on here, but I tried to puzzle it out. And that, 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 that act of trying to puzzle it out made me want to buy more issues and find out more. Same thing with like the letters pages, the letters pages in these books, are markedly different from most of the DC letters pages of the period, which were fun, but were very much about, you know, we're having an orderly critique of the mm -hmm. issue that had just come out and what the readers thought about it and how, and these are, you know, sort of chaotic statements uh, of opinion about the last couple of issues that talk about the events therein in a way that made me want to go, I don't know what Galactus is, but it sure sounds cool. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a letter in here in, in one of these issues that's somebody pretending that they've just bought Fantastic Four number one. Uh, and, and I thought that was that was like weird and great in some way. Um, and 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 so like everything about these books are, you know, we're, we're, we're different. And yet there's enough familiarity. The bullpen page uh, and the ads were kind of a revelation to me because they're all just a, a circus. Yeah. They're all just constantly screaming at you. Here are comics that are coming at you. <laughs> and here's, you know, here's exciting stuff that's happening. And, 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 you know, people you don't know about or understand or whatnot are doing things. And there are Which... radio shows and we're putting out new magazines and, oh, there's hostess ads where we're fighting over, over <laughs> sponge cake products. And, um, you know, so, so the whole thing, um, you know, I, I, I just found them very, in, very engaging. Oh man. Uh, what what you're saying is that, I mean, I, I would read comics of this similarly, like it'd be like something I would get at seven 11, uh, I, I would read these issues catch as catch can. I rarely read like a whole block of them. Um, but what I love the chaos of them. And even now as an adult, I, I think you, you know, you were saying in a different context, 
it's important to not be too precious or fragile with these characters. I know that was in a different situation, but Mm -hmm. similarly, I like that these stories seem kind of reckless. For example, at one point, the thing is in the negative zone and is like a lizard creature is flying towards him. Then he blacks out and he's just back in the Baxter building tied to the fan. They never explain that. Right. I mean, they, they, they barely do. Yeah, they cover that. Oh, they pulled it's him out of the negative over. zone or whatnot. But yeah, it's just on to the next thing. Like we're yeah. we're going. All so, that we're all that's really there to do from a from a story standpoint is to show you the negative zone is a dangerous place. Yes. So that when Reed is thrown in at the end and you realize gasp, it's the real Reed who's trapped there without his powers, you know, and it's a really dangerous place where weird lizard headed yeah. guys are flying around <laughs> looking for lunch. Um, you know, and, and, you know, they, they dispense with that. I think in that issue in like two pages, the splash page is the thing floating in the negative zone yeah. where the brute has thrown him. And the second page is the, the lizard guy coming at him and him blocking out. And by page three, we're back in the Baxter building, back on the fan and everything's that, 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 that bit's love, done. What's your opinion as an FF uh, editor, Longtime FF fan. What do you think on muscly Reed Richards? Do you like him better when he's uh, sometimes he's hugely muscled and like he's jacked well, and sometimes he's like this thin, emaciated professor, you know? What, cer- your- cer- certainly you can see Kirby change him over the course of, yeah. of oh, the, yeah. the 10 years that he draws the, se- the series. Yeah. Um, you know, he starts out very, very spindly and, you know, he kind of grows into that Kirby physique yeah. um, by the by the mid 60s. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't have a strong preference one way or the other. I tend to lean more towards the slimmer read simply because yeah. that's a more distinctive body type. Yeah. Uh, and certainly like, you know, when John Byrne took over the, the series, he really he immediately just kind of like left turned back to that body type in between yeah. issues. Reed went on a crash diet and lost like <laughs> 150 pounds because, you know, John wanted to do it the way he was he was comfortable with. And since then on and off that's more or less been like the typical uh read look but i again because i read these comics you know in the 70s and was reading both the the stan and jack stuff and the the, the current stuff contemporaneously like i have no problem with a with a more buffed out read in some yeah. ways I, I i feel like today I, i'd like to get a little more of that read back that read in those stan stories um, could be every bit as as uh, you know heroic and speech spouting and yeah and true as, Cap. as as a Captain America yeah. you know or, or or a Cyclops and we don't often think of Reed Richards that way today because we have steered so so heavily into the the Professor uh, uh, a version of that you know the idea that that Reed would have a fist fight with Namor seems bananas today yeah. to people and yet that used to happen every five issues. <laughs> There's uh, something I, I I do I, th- I feel like with the uh, advent of streaming and even before that like box sets of DVDs I'm talking more about TV there but yeah. I think it infected comics uh, as well this idea of like reading a comic like this going well who's Thundra who's Tigra these people are just flowing in through the windows of the Baxter Building <laughs> and instead of saying like I can't follow this I didn't read issue one I'm not gonna keep reading which I think is somewhat we you hear that sort of reaction to stuff now. My reaction as a kid was always like, oh, Spider-Man's living in an apartment. Where's Aunt May? What's this costume? Who's the black cat? I got to keep reading and find out. Right Now, I think I feel like uh, it's sad to me that like people read this stuff now and, and some of their reactions, it seems like is, I don't know who these people are. I got to start at the when you reboot issue one again. 
Well, that's I mean, you're you're right. The audience expectation has changed, but yeah, you know, and and you know, you're also right that that's a byproduct of streaming and you know DVD sales. Yeah, having everything available to you. Whatever, you know, the idea these days that somebody starts watching, I don't know, Friends, based on whatever episode of Friends happens to be on that day, isn't really the case. Anybody that's watching Friends new today is whatever channel it's on, I think it's, I know it was just moved from one service to another, but if it's on yeah. Netflix, they start with episode one and they, yeah. they run all the way through and they don't deviate from that really. Nobody jumps to episode 34 right away. Uh, and so that's sort of just changed uh, how people engage with the material. Um, and certainly it's a, it's a thing that we hear an awful lot, mostly from the uninitiated or the barely initiated, people who might've seen a TV show or a, a movie mm -hmm. or whatnot who feel like our the world of comics is daunting because there's just so much. There's so much history. Even just going to any any comic store, there's just so much there. Where do you start? How do I start? I, I'm intimidated by this. Yeah. Um, and we try to build every individual issue in such a way that, uh, much like, like these comics, hopefully, um, they're engaging enough in what's going on that you can pick up the who and what of, of who everybody is on the fly. You don't have to have read 600 issues of Fantastic Four to read the new issue of Fantastic Four, but you're absolutely right. There is definitely a segment of the audience who feel disquieted at the idea that they're going to start with issue yeah. 792 yeah. and they haven't read the other 791 ones because they're going to be lost. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked about it on this podcast before because I think I came up on comics because of that. I will sometimes just try a show out still in the middle. Uh, now I have the ability, if I like it, to now go back and start a, start over at one. But like I watched Deadwood season two first. Mm -hmm. right. I was like, oh, this is good. I, I'm going to have to like rent the season one DVDs from Netflix back pre-streaming. Because uh, like this is a good show. Uh, I wasn't scared to start watching in the middle. I didn't wait for like an HBO marathon. So it just didn't occur to me that why why would I wait? Or I started watching uh, 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 The Wire in the middle. I started watching yeah. um, a lot of sitcoms. I would start like just whenever. And then you'd like because you couldn't watch them at some point. But even when I had that ability, I sort of didn't wait for it. Yeah. And, and again, that was the way pretty much everybody yeah. did it for years and years and years. Yeah. But now that most people aren't getting their entertainment from scheduled broadcast television or scheduled cable television even where it's much more this, this streaming model where you can watch anything whenever you want in whatever order you want. Everybody does what seems like a very sensible thing. They start at the beginning because why yeah. would you not do that? Uh, it does mean your, your chances of being exposed to something randomly in the way that was commonplace uh, years back doesn't happen as often. I have the same, even, even within the last couple of years, I've I've you know gotten into watching sitcoms or things by just happening to catch an episode that happened to be on that day, uh, and going oh that was pretty good I should check the rest of these out and eventually, you know seeking out the the, the earlier episodes and the rest of seasons and whatnot. It's just way easier now, but it also means the expectation is different. And you lose that runway you were talking about, like that like all the old Marvel comics had to find their feet as they're like we don't even know what this character is yet. Yeah, uh, you you can't. You can't let a comic book go, uh, well, by issue 12, we'll have it knocked down because like people read those first three issues or get the first trade and say, nah, it was inconsistent. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, but it gets really good after that. It's too late. It has to be a, a great first issue and a great second issue and an even better third issue. And that's hard. 
Yeah, well, it's also, you know, it's just a, 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 the fact that there's just more entertainment choices yeah. today than yeah. ever before. You know, uh, there's a million shows on a million streaming services. There's a million movies on a million streaming services. There's a million podcasts like this one. Yeah. Um, there's, a mil- there's a million everything. And so. Wait, there's a million of these? Wait, yeah. we thought we were the only podcast. Other people are doing this? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's what I, that's hard. We should be. No wonder we're not doing as well as we thought. <laughs> But it just it just means that anybody's uh, investment in a thing like you're not it's no longer good enough to be good enough. You know, when I grew up in the 70s and I again, I expect the same is true of of you guys. You know, we watched, you know, shows on television every night and every night we watched whatever the best thing there was that was on among the whatever three channels that you had that were broadcasting stuff, which meant that often you watched a lot of stuff that you didn't necessarily particularly like. Certainly. In the afternoons after school, you'd come home and you might want to watch a particular show, a cartoon or a sitcom yeah. or whatnot, and you would sit there for 90 minutes to get through whatever, to, yeah, to get to the show that was on, whether even on that station or on other stations, whatever the best thing was. This is why so many of us know every episode of Gilligan's Island, despite the fact yeah. that none of us are particularly Gilligan's Island fans, yeah. because it was between you and whatever show there was on. And rather than wandering off and going to do something else for 30 minutes, you sat there and you watched yeah. Gilligan and the Skipper do their thing. I remember in TV Guide, I remember reading some book about like comedians in history and reading an article about George Burns and Gracie Allen. And then I, and George Burns in the late seventies was still like a star, right? There's movies yep. like, Oh God, or whatever. Oh God. So as a kid, I knew George Burns. But and then I read this article as like a comedy nerd fan about Burns and Allen. I was like, oh, who's Gracie Allen? And there was no like thing with Gracie Allen. But then in TV Guide, I saw like at four in the morning on a particular night, Channel 11 out of New York was going to run Burns and Allen. Right. So I stayed yeah. up. I was like 11 <laughs> or something. I stayed up until four, snuck out and turned on the TV to watch some grainy footage of like Burns and Allen, just out of curiosity, like who were these people? Isn't that crazy? There was like no other way that you could like see it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was my, my sort of equivalent experience to that sort of is, uh, you know, that's how we used to watch Dr. Who. Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Who in the on 70s, channel 13 or something in the seventies or eighties, they would show, I, you know, I, I didn't get to see the, the show until I, my family moved to Delaware when I was around 14, 15 and it would air on PBS stations. Yeah. Um, typically on Friday or Saturday night. Uh, and they would edit, you know, a whole story together into a block. Yeah. Um, they would start at midnight. So if you had a six episode story, you were you were going to three in the morning. Yeah. And and you had to be committed <laughs> to, 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 to do it. And you had to have fortitude to be able to do it because yeah. granted it's Friday night or whatever, but like three in the morning was a stretch <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, you know, uh, and, yeah. and 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 uh, you know, you had to worry. There was no option. That was when it was on. So that's when you watched it, and that's how you watched it. Um, so on the on you know the, the 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 upside to all this that we're talking about is I can now watch it whenever I want in whatever yeah. sequence, whatever order I want, however I want. The downside is I can also do the same thing with literally everything else that exists, and yeah. you know consequently my my shelf of unread comics is larger than ever before. Yeah, unread comics. Uh, choosing which TV show to watch. Or my my movie list gets longer. I keep starting oh, yeah. shows and being like, oh no, I gotta watch this other one. I can't. Yeah. I can't figure it out. 
Yeah, but it, it does mean that any show that, that gets started, like the bar for success is much higher. Like I don't have time yeah. for a show that does, isn't working. You get me 15 minutes into a show and I'm not there, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, when I'm people just, say like uh, by season two, it's great. It's like, what are you asking of me? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's definitely it's definitely a much harder commitment to make on something like that. I got in an argument with a good friend of mine about Deep Space Nine because he, he loves uh, uh, our friend Charlie. Well, he was like, he loves Deep Space Nine. I was like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to kind of I watched a few episodes. I want to watch it. When should I start watching? He's like, you got to start at episode one. It gets good <laughs> around season four. Like, <laughs> I started season four. He's like, you can't. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to watch it. Then. I love it. I love Unless it. you tell me where I can start. I want to skip the bad ones. Um, right. Here's or the I'll mediocre t- ones. I'm so excited to ha- to be able to ask you questions, Tom. I could go forever, but Kevin, what should we do? What should we do here? Should we sh- uh, time wise? I feel like I have no idea. What, uh, we we've, we're already over, right? We should ask like, one more question. Uh, I feel like to not exploit your time too much, but I'm gonna I'm gonna treat myself to one more completely unfair question, Tom. All right. Uh, and it's unfair because there's, I don't think there's really an answer to this. Uh, how can, uh, what is what is okay? What is the best era of Marvel Comics? And I'm going to take out of the running the Lee Kirby Ditko era because it's like so formative that that doesn't count. So, or, or if you count that as number one, I want the second best. And you can um, you can show your work because I know it's an insane question. No, I, that's actually a simple question, but I'm going to give you an unconventional answer. The okay. the, the the best era of Marvel comics is when you are 11. <laughs> sure. Yeah. For that's every, true. for every reader and for every audience, um, the comics that they read when they were, you know, in those formative years, 10, 11, 12, whatever, those are better for them than anything else. And it changes generationally. I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a unique spot, uh, you know, because as an editor, I've now done the job long enough that for a while, after a couple of years, after a number of years, I started to have people coming in to interview for assistant editor positions who would say, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I loved the comics that you edited years yeah. ago. Right. Um, and I've now been around long enough where I can now have uh, 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 you know, people, applicants come in and say, my dad really loved the comics that you did years ago. <laughs> right, or, right, right. Or, or, and I wasn't alive when you started <laughs> to make the comics that you made years ago. Yeah. And what it means is, and I see it on a daily basis, like the, the younger editors are, you know, they're certainly plugged into the, the zeitgeist and the pop culture scene of, you know, their lifetimes. But um, things that seem commonplace to an older audience they're just not as conversant with or familiar with because it wasn't it wasn't their generation and that just that's every generation in a nutshell you know yeah they have no idea uh you know if i make a reference to gilligan's island i have to explain what gilligan's island sure, was sure, right, right. because not only do they not know it they don't understand the context of what the heck i'm talking about i guess um, marvel so, marvel comics is like snl in that way you like it because of what age you were at when a certain thing was going on right when it delivered the thing that that you like you know there were i was a i was a huge you know fan of it particularly in the late 70s into the 80s when i started um i obviously love the 60s material but going into the the back half of that jim shooter era in the 80s like i i dropped most everything that marvel was was publishing yeah. i kind of followed it from afar i was following other publishers and i was more into 
the the independent titles that were starting to crop up in the eighties. Oh, really? Like but Eclipse I, and stuff, or like Fantagraphics? Yeah, yeah, all, 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 like literally everything. Yeah. Um, but I, I was off of you know, there's a bunch of years there where I wasn't really reading a lot of Marvel books because I didn't like them, and yet for a lot of people, that's uh, uh you know, a wellspring of like prime Marvel bedrock. Yeah. Uh, as is the '90s. Like you talked about the Clone Saga uh, uh, at the top. There's a generation for whom like that thing is is like their their Spider-Man. Like that's yeah. the Spider-Man that they grew up with, and that's the Spider-Man that they loved. And every yeah. issue was exciting, and crazy stuff was going on all the time. And um, so it's constantly. I mean, it's it's weird to me now because you know Civil War is an old comic. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels yeah. like a comic I edited you know last month. Right, but right, that right. was that was like 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so there are now audience members who were like, I read Civil War when I was a zygote or I read, uh, you know, Civil War um, that I got in this trade paperback collection or digitally last week. Um, and it's just a different it's a different experience. So yeah. my answer to your question is really, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can wait and measure any one era as being more significant than another. They all are depending on the audience. Okay. I, uh, uh, I definitely, I remember like in the nineties, like falling out sort of like you're describing for the end of the shooter era. That's sort of where I got knocked out for a while. Like Peter David leaving the Hulk and and Spider-Man's parents coming back, followed by the clones and carnage. I was like, I just don't care. Yep. And then I got sucked back in with untold tales of uh, Spider-Man. Yeah. you? We I love Untold Tales. It was yeah. it was it was Kurt and and Pat Olaf, really. Yeah, but, but you were I the editor, edited. right? You were the yes. editor. The uh, the issue. Of, we we uh, adore that series. We think that is like so insanely special and good. Well, well, thank there's, you. There's some Vulture issue. It's like three or five or early on uh, when the Vulture uh, the Vulture. Throw the Spidey train. from the train. Yes, that Throw one. Spidey from the train. I saw that on the rack. I was like, I flipped through it. I'm like, oh, this is this is you know the the Ditko era of Spidey. It's 99 cents. All right, I'll get that. And that led to like Marvels and it led to eventually when Kurt did Avengers and then like back into like everything Marvel for a while. And then I kind of ebb and flow like any sane person. Uh, I'm not a completist. I'm not one of those people that needs every issue right. of a run. Um, but yeah, you just feel that. It's just sort of like, oh, it, it's not for, and sometimes I don't like a comic. Uh, I always have to remind myself, it's like, oh, it's not for me. This is just, it's for somebody else who's loving it. I, I can't. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. if whether it you hurts. are pleased by it or not is not a yeah. not a measure of whether it's good or not. It might might just be not for you. Uh, uh, Thunder, uh, Thunderbolts is another one that you worked on, Tom. That was like it's funny because Kevin and our my friendship with Kevin just as brothers. We were kids. We read all kinds of comics together. Then we grew up and we like weren't I don't know maybe not as close. Our lives were separate just because yeah. we were adults. But the comics really, Kevin was part of the reason why we started talking a lot. And I remember in the mid nineties, you. I be, Kevin would basically tell me, you got to read Untold Tales or whatever. You got to read this. And that started us, I would go to the comic shop in New York, St. Mark's Comics on 8th Street, and just buy whatever Kevin had told me to get. But uh, Untold Tales was one of them. And Thunderbolts was another one. That was another one you loved, Kevin. Like you, Thunderbolts was... surprised me because I, I liked Kurt at this point because um, uh, of, uh, had Marvels already? Marvels had happened at this point. Yeah, Marvels yeah. had come out. Marvels and, was before Untold Tales. And so Marvels and Untold Tales were so good that I was like, well, I'm going to check out Thunderbolts. But the like two or three appearances of Thunderbolts prior to issue one, I was like, I don't know. I don't see it. Yeah, who cares? It's just seemed like another group of superheroes. They showed up in the Hulk or whatever. Yep. yep. And, and I bought that first issue and I'm reading it about halfway through the first issue. I'm like, 
oh, this is this is good. This is good. Like there's a little bit of what I now would say is like an Astro City feel where like we're watching like people become fans of this team. That's an interesting angle. Okay, I'm in. And then I got to the last page. I'm like, this is not the comic. This is incredible. I can't imagine being so stunned by a comic like that. I guess Superior Spider-Man sort of did that. Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. three issues prior to that. Uh, that reveal uh, about halfway I, through that issue, I was like, this feels off. I vividly remember Kevin contacting me being like, you got to you gotta read Thunderbolts. You know yeah. what I mean? And I was like 30. I was like, I don't have to read anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm glad that I did. So. We're just, it, we're just thrilled to have you, Tom, and we just appreciate you spending spending so much yeah, time yeah, talking yeah. to the us. The stuff you do is great. Uh, uh, obviously, our comic book work is great, but if you're going to keep anything, keep doing the blog. That's the most important <laughs> thing. Uh, we, we are a fan of you primarily as a blogger. Your yeah. your editorship of Marvel is secondary to us. You can well, you can cover issue one of FF every week, and I probably will never get tired <laughs> of it. Well, I I, I very well may. <laughs> um, but I, but I, uh, I, I, like I say, I appreciate you, you reading and your enthusiasm for it all. And certainly for, you know, uh, reading so many Marvel comics over the years. So, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It was nice to, to, to be here and talk about this stuff with you guys. All right. That was our interview with Tom Brevoort. Um, Kevin, wasn't that so exciting? Yeah, I can't, uh, I was surprised we got him to, I don't know why I was surprised, but I was surprised anyone wants to do our podcast. Uh, we Tom have self-esteem like very, problems. So Tom seems like a very busy man. Yeah, uh, but he also is an enthusiastic comics fan as well as yeah. a comics editor, so you know that he's excited to talk about it. What's I get the, it but what's he getting out of this? Who knows? I, I do get the feeling just, and I we sh- did not ask him this, but I think he enjoys being an ambassador of Marvel Comics, so I think in yes. a way he likes mixing it up with the fans just to kind of be like, Hey, I appreciate you for reading Marvel. That was the last thing he said to us in the interview with us. And I think he just kind of feels a responsibility to the company that he's worked at for so long to be a Mm -hmm. good representative. And I kind of think that's what's in it for him. He's like, Hey, I'm proud to be a representative of Marvel. I'm going to talk to fans about it. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's fans can be so uh, awful sometimes (laughs) but i'm always surprised when any creator stays on twitter or uh, social media or does interviews um just because it's like saying your opinion or or i don't know or writing people can use it as an excuse to attack you or get into fights or be really negative dan slot did a story about spider-man uh brain being taken over by doc ock and got death threats from people right mostly because like when he talked about it he'd be like oh no uh this is it this is the permanent change because yeah. that's how you want to sort of talk about it. Like, of course, it's not a permanent change. You're an idiot if you think Peter Parker's never going to be Spider-Man again. Yeah. But also read the comic as if you think that might be the case. It will be better. And because they talked about it that way, he got death threats. Uh, and he yeah, gets yeah, harassed crazy. on social media by people who hated his comics. And it's like, okay, go away if you hate his yeah. comics. I love his comics. So, uh, so it, people like Tom or Dan or uh, Kurt Busaic uh, who stay online – uh, I'm impressed. Yeah, it's a, it takes a certain kind of personality to be sort of sure enough of your opinions to state them and <clears throat> kind of endure the wildfire of social media a little bit. And, I, you know, I think a little bit of just like understanding that the worst of the fans are not representative of everybody. And, um, yeah, Tom is a guy who helps to make Marvel more accessible, which is which is really nice that he's able to do that and willing to do that. So we, yeah. were, we were thrilled to talk to him about stuff. Yeah, and he was our exciting. first guest. Yeah. Oh, such a good one to start with. Uh, if you want to email us about this episode or uh, anything, 
uh, used our email address, which is screwitspidey, screwitspidey at gmail.com. And then we also have a Twitter and an Instagram uh, at screwitcomics, uh, where Kevin puts up screenshots of a lot of the stuff we talk about. So um, that's it. Please get in touch with us. Uh, we're lonely. We want to talk to you. And, oh, rate and review us on wherever that happens now. And yeah. uh, we'll see you next episode. Get a good night's sleep, too. Yeah, get a good night's sleep. Take care of yourself. Drink water. Bye, everybody. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just Comics. Have you ever encountered an unexplained hairy bipedal hominid in the woods? Have you received telepathic messages from an unidentified aerial phenomenon? If so, then you need to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm Michael McMillan. And I'm Bryce Johnson. And together with super producer... Riley Bray. We make up the Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's right. Every week we talk to actors, comedians, writers, and paranormal experts about their personal paranormal histories and share stories of high strangeness. Like the time when we talked to Craig Ferguson about the Loch Ness Monster and when a sea witch told him he had raven magic. Or the time I asked Pitch Perfect's Anna Camp her opinion on cattle mutilations. Past guests have included Rachel Bloom, Jen Kirkman, Paul F. Tompkins, Bobcat Goldthwait, and more. So if you've ever been abducted alongside five reindeer by an alien with drills for hands or witnessed Bigfoot crawl out of an interdimensional portal, don't laugh, happens all the time, then check out Bigfoot Collectors Club on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Bigfoot Collectors Club, you're You're here here to to believe believe us. Wait, is that how it goes? Campfire.